Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hello everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History. On the 18th of August 1942, a flotilla of ships and boats moved across the flat waters of the Channel towards the coast of occupied France. They're there to seize the German held port of Dieppe, try and hold it for 24 hours, in a mission with slightly unclear aims, but probably above all to show the Soviets that the Western Allies were serious about getting a second front opened and doing the necessary information gathering to support a full-scale invasion of Western Europe. But, as you may know, the operation turned out to be a massacre, a military disaster. Nearly two-thirds of those who attacked ended up dead, wounded, or captured. It is a great pleasure, it's a privilege, in fact, to interview the best-selling author Patrick Bishop on the podcast today to get his account of this doomed endeavour and tell us some pretty painful truths about this operation, and how it's been mythologized ever since. If you want to watch documentaries about World War II, well, we've got them on History Hit TV. It's like Netflix for history. This year, my documentary series on Bismarck, on the anniversary of the destruction of that great naval vessel, proved very popular, so you can go and watch that, or you can watch our discovery of the D-Day shipwrecks. We found two survivors of the amphibious assault on D-Day rotting away in Poole Harbour in southern England. Just a huge pleasure to make those documentaries. They're up there now. Lots and lots of people watching. Please go and subscribe, historyhit.tv. You get 30 days free if you subscribe today. What's not to like? In the meantime, though, here's an account of a very different kind of amphibious assault on Europe. It's the Dieppe Raid of 1942 with Patrick Bishop. Enjoy. Patrick, thank you very much indeed for coming on the podcast. Thanks for asking me. Uh, It's a great honour to have you on. As a Canadian, this is a story that we're all very much aware of. What was the idea? Why did Britain launch this enormous amphibious assault in 1942? Well, this was a kind of hiatus in the British war effort. They've managed to extract themselves from Dunkirk, etc. Things are not going terribly well in North Africa, in the Western Desert. So the basis of gathering their strength, and now combined, of course, with the strength of the Americans for an eventual invasion or the start of the process that will drive the Germans back from occupied territory uh, in Western Europe. So in the meantime, you know, for all sorts of reasons, the British have got to be seen to be doing something. So in a way, the kind of impetus for the raid is a political impetus. And it comes at the end of a long series of raids that start really 
at the turn of the year, 1941-1942. So they kind of gather in um, scale and impact. And so this is the biggest one thus far when it's finally launched. There are several delays in August. So the reason behind it, I would say in simple terms, is to show, for the British to show to the Americans and the Russians who are terribly important in all this, that they're serious, there's a lot of pressure on them to invade Europe early. They don't want to do that for very good reasons. They think it could end in disaster until they're absolutely ready to go. It's showing intent. It's saying, look, we are serious about this. So we're going to mount a big spectacular raid that will convince you all that we mean business. In the Ostend raid, there's a Brugger raid of World War One. There's a very particular thing. They want to try and stop U-boats entering the Channel of the North Sea. Was there a specific purpose to this raid in the spirit of that earlier raid? So in that sense, there wasn't so much of a military purpose to the raid. In fact, it's quite hard to find any military significance in it at all in terms of actually inflicting damage on the Germans. If you look at the array of targets, they're all kind of things like port installations, military supplies, utilities, and you think, well, you know, was all that effort worth it simply to blow up a few ammunition dumps. And from another perspective, if you're blowing up the gas works or the electricity works or something, you're hurting the local population, your allies, supposedly, as much as probably more than you are the Germans. So there's nothing there. And reading through all the mounds and mounds of papers there were on the preparations for the raid, there's nothing that stands out as saying why this was a particularly good military target. Now, there were lots of reasons were advanced afterwards saying, oh, well, actually, you know, there was a higher purpose to all this. I think we'll come on to that, but there's nothing there that suggests that there was a kind of overriding military objective in their sights. It sounds to me like a little bit like those raids that they launched in the Seven Years' War. The young James Wolfe was involved in some of them. And I think it was Pitt used to say, you're breaking France's windows with golden guineas. Anyway, so let's get on to that. How big was the force that Mountbatten was able to deploy? Well, he put together a very mixed force. The infantry were predominantly Canadian. They came from uh, the Canadian troops who had been pouring across the Atlantic since the beginning of the war, really, and who had been kicking their heels in southeast England with endless training exercises, but no real military action at all. They were supported in two flank attacks on either side by two commando units, so it was a big, you know, complicated operation, landings on six different beaches, many, many moving parts, and of course, a huge naval operation as well to get them there, and a huge air operation to supposedly soften up the defences and also to obviously protect the fleet once battle was joined. So what was the plan? Were they going to land, secure the town, then leave? Was it like sort of Drake singeing the King of Spain's beard? The idea was that basically it was what they call a coup de main, which is you go in, you smash the place up, and then you get out again. But as I was saying, all all this great effort and the the great cost of life, that's the thing that really is the central point about the Dieppe Raid, is that the casualties were absolutely staggering. I mean, of the 6,000-odd Canadians who took part, nearly 1,000 didn't come back, or rather were killed, and then something like nearly 2,000 were taken prisoner, and then you had a huge number of casualties as well. So it was, by any standards, a very, very bloody and costly day. So that's the reason why, subsequently, so much effort went into trying to give it some reason and some purpose. 
And that effort was largely led by the man who I suppose, there was many hands in the making of the plan and in the execution of the plan. But the man who really bears most responsibility was Lord Mountbatten, who was the head of combined operations. Now, Mountbatten was a very complicated and interesting character. At one level, he was a great man and he was a brilliant organiser, he was very inspirational, etc. He was also tremendously vain, tremendously jealous of his own reputation. So up until now, things had by and large gone pretty well for him. And this was a big setback. He was always thinking about himself as a historical figure and thinking, how is this going to look to future generations? And so when it was clearly and unanswerably a disaster, he had to say, no, no, it may look like this, but there's actually a real benefit. It may seem hard to see at the moment, but just wait. And his argument was, we had to do this. We had to launch a big cross-channel raid on a port in order to find out how you did it. And so it's a learning process. It's a very painful learning process. You learn by your mistakes, and then you don't make the same mistakes when you launch the real one. Now, that all sounds kind of plausible, and indeed many people went along with it and accepted it. It's still kind of swallowed wholesale today by large chunks of those with a memory of Dieppe. My view is that this is nonsense and that if that was the case, if it really had been a sort of military laboratory experiment, there would have been lots of stuff in the order saying, when you're doing this, make sure that the metrics are being observed, that you're actually measuring what you're doing against some kind of military scientific measure. There's nothing there at all. There's nothing like that at all. It was only subsequently that they started saying, oh, we learned these very, very valuable lessons. Most of the lessons they supposedly learned, there was a paper produced afterwards that says lessons learned from the DFA. But they're sort of glaringly obvious to anyone who knows anything about the basics of military operations. So I think it was really a kind of back-covering exercise by Mountbatten. And those around him, there were lots of other people around him who went along with it. And between them, they kind of massaged history thereafter in order to get a version of events that suited their concerns. And it was pretty much accepted, really, right down to today. I mean, one of the things that Mountbatten always said was that D-Day, although many people died on D-Day, many, many more would have died if it hadn't been for the lessons learned at Dieppe. And he even comes up with a mathematical formula for it, which is completely plucked out of thin air. Like I say, I think a sort of junior staff officer would be able to work out what to do and what not to do when you're launching a cross-channel invasion without having to send 6,000 men into the jaws of death to prove a few simple basic points. So... Patrick, how do the landings go? The landings were one of the most ghastly events in the Allied war. It all went spectacularly wrong almost immediately. So you have this decision made before that they're not going to go with flank attacks and attack Dieppe from the side. There will be flank attacks, but the main attack is going to go in from the front directly onto the beaches in front of Dieppe. Tanks are being landed for the first time. So you've got this concentration of landing ships carrying troops and landing ships carrying tanks all funneling into this quite narrow front at dawn on the 19th of August, 1942, and straight into this very well-worked-out field of fire that the Germans have had plenty of time to organise, which is pumping machine guns, mortars, artillery into the landing zone. So the chances of them getting off the beach were 
pretty much zero. And it's incredible that some of them did actually manage to get into the town. A couple of parties made it into the town. But basically, the attack literally died on the beach. On the flank beaches, things didn't go much better. On the one slightly to the east of Dieppe, Blue Beach, one of the great massacres of the Allied war took place there, where the troops just floundered off the landing craft and straight into the teeth of these very well-sighted German machine guns. They just literally mowed them down. So there were some pretty painful images of stacked up bodies which haven't even got off the beach. They're still below this sea wall. You might ask yourself, why was it that they didn't know all this? And the answer is, well, actually, they did know all this. And even though they didn't have perfect intelligence about where the German defences were sited, they had a pretty good idea of where they were. And if you read the intelligence reports, it's pretty accurate. Initially, there was going to be a heavy air bombardment, which was meant to suppress these defences. And that was called off. There was an air attack before the initial landing went in. Plus, there was some naval gunfire to suppress the defences. But what you really needed was heavy naval gunfire, which is reasonably accurate. I don't think a heavy air bombardment would have done much good because that was notoriously inaccurate and would probably have flattened the air and not necessarily hit the enemy defences. But the heavy naval support would have had to be supplied by a battleship and the Admiralty were not prepared to risk the loss of another battleship that already lost plenty <laughs> up to this point in the relatively narrow waters of the channel at that point. It would have been a huge target for the Luftwaffe and they probably would have managed to hit it. So they said, no, no, all we're going to give you is six destroyers. And the guns on a destroyer are puny compared to those on a cruiser or a battleship. So they really made very little impact on the defences. Knowing all this, they still went ahead. And one of the themes of the book is how decisions are made and how plans get a momentum of their own. People are invested, people at the high level are invested in the plan and they just sort of steam on. And I think another problem is that even though the flaws in the plan are pretty glaringly obvious, no one actually has ownership of the whole project. So everyone, I think, when they're reflecting on this could go one way, it could go the other, they think, well, if it goes wrong, then I can say, it wasn't me, Gulf, you know, my responsibility was this and it was down to the other guy, so you can't point the finger at me. And if it goes well, I can say, yeah, I did play a large part in this. And um, so claim your, you know, it's the old thing of victory has many fathers, but defeat is an orphan. And this was very much the case with Dia. The other thing you have to remember is that the Germans knew we were coming, not specifically that we were coming at Dieppe, but ever since the start of the year, Hitler had been issuing these warnings about the political situation makes it inevitable that the Allies will launch some sort of big cross-channel operation. Maybe the invasion will come this year. So there are constant exhortations to be on the alert, to keep going over your defensive plan. And at the same time, the defence is being built up all along that coast, all the way down that channel coast, to reinforce gun positions, new guns are coming in, workers from all over occupied Europe are being drafted in to build the Atlantic Wall, reinforce the Atlantic Wall. So they didn't really need to know they were coming specifically at Dieppe. The defences were very stout all the way down there. Wherever you chose, it was going to be a tough nut to crack until you got all the way down to lower Normandy, where things are so spread out that it's difficult to create a defensive line that is as impregnable as the one that they built around Dieppe. 
You're listening to Dan Snow's History. We're talking Dieppe. More coming up. Hello, if you're enjoying this podcast, then I know you're going to be fascinated by the new episodes of the History Hit Warfare podcast, from the Napoleonic battles and Cold War confrontations to the Normandy landings and 9-11. We reveal new perspectives on how war has shaped and changed our modern world. I'm your host, James Rogers, and each week, twice a week, I team up with fellow historians, military veterans, journalists, and experts from around the world to bring you inspiring leaders. If the crossroads had fallen, then what Napoleon would have achieved is he would have severed the communications between the Allied force and the Prussian force, and there wouldn't have been a Waterloo. It would have been as simple as that. Revolutionary technologies. At the time the weapons were tested, there was this perception of great risk and great fear during the arms race that meant that these countries disregarded these communities' health and well-being to pursue nuclear weapons instead. And war-defining strategies. It's as though the world is incapable of finding a moderate light presence. It always wants to either swamp the place in trillion dollar wars or it wants to have nothing at all to do with it. And in relation to a country like Afghanistan, both approaches are catastrophic. Join us on the History Hit Warfare podcast, where we're on the front line of military history. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Tell me about the men. Was this many of them their first time in battle? Yeah, the Canadians were all volunteers. They were the sons of the men who gone to Britain's aid in the First World War and had fought very gallantly and, and very skillfully, at, particularly the big battles of 1917 at uh, Vimy Ridge and Passchendaele, both names which resonate still in Canadian history. They were well-trained, they were very enthusiastic, they had great courage, and I think the one good thing that comes out of this story is just how brave and noble isn't too strong a word, I don't think, for the way they've behaved to each other and the resolve they showed in trying to do a job that was beyond the capabilities of anybody. So the bulk of the infantry, as I say, are Canadians. And then you've got the two commando units, three commando and four commando. Commanders are an invention of the Second World War, really, and they're really coming into their own now. They've proved what they can do at various raids elsewhere. And this is the one success story of the whole Dieppe operation was carried out by four commando on the far western flank on uh, Orange Beach. And that was to suppress a heavy battery that faced out to sea. And if it had got into operation, it could easily have finished off the invasion fleet as it lay off Dieppe. So it was vital that it was knocked out. And that job was given to four commando and its commander, Lord Lovett, who was a kind of romantic, dashing figure, Scottish aristocrat, very good soldier who made a very good plan and had very good men to execute it. And so everything went like clockwork to an almost sort of uncanny degree. Most of the time in warfare, something goes wrong somewhere. But in this case, 
it all went absolutely to the letter and to the minute. So that was a great achievement, which of course was seized on by the propagandists to show that it wasn't an unmitigated disaster. Well, they never actually admitted it was an unmitigated disaster, but that was very much highlighted in the coverage post the event. And the reality for them when they hit the beach was many of them hardly got out of the shallows. That's right. The bow doors of the landing craft went down. Immediately, the German machine gunners opened up. They had opened up even before that happened. So if you were standing at a landing craft, you were basically just seeing guys in front of you falling in a hail of bullets, and then you had to then put yourself into the gap that they left. So it was almost unimaginably terrifying. What about naval support? And air support, do we see the kind of gigantic firepower deployed you get on D-Day and indeed the close air support that you see in 1944? There was a huge air effort. The original idea, as I said, had been to bombard the defences with heavy bombers. That was veto for various reasons. So you do get light bombers coming in. You get hurry bombers, which are hybrid aircraft. You get low attack fighters who are strafing the German the air effort is very impressive, and the effort that went into protecting the fleet from Luftwaffe attack was pretty successful. Part of the plan was that they were going to get into an attritional battle with the German Air Force, which would be a kind of separate victory, if you like. It would be an air victory, rather like on the lines of the Battle of Britain, where in one day they were hoping to smash a great hole in the German air capability in France. Didn't quite work out like that. Losses were pretty much the same on both sides. But the Air Force did do extremely well. So you do see a high level of coordination. And I think in one sense, although actually this claim is not made much, but it is one claim that could plausibly be made. They did actually learn quite a lot about land, air and land, sea coordination with the Air Force on that day. Lessons that could be applied later. How does it end? The story only lasts a few hours from going ashore to go ashore at dawn, which is on the operational timings, is just before five o'clock. And it's pretty much all over by noon. And on the various beaches, you know, this is a very spread out operation. At certain points after fighting heroically, the Canadians say, OK, we've done as much as we possibly can, you know, and if just continuing it would be just to invite total annihilation. And so at various times they managed to find a white cloth somewhere and wave it. And the Germans behave well. You know, they come in and they take the surrender and they then immediately start doing something about the many, many, many wounded who are lying around. They treat their prisoners with some degree of dignity. But I was struck by the number of people who refused, even the Canadians, who refused even at that point to just meekly go into captivity and who then jumped into the sea and swam out in search of a boat that would pick them up and take them back to Blighty. And quite a few of them actually managed to do that. When you studied D-Day, you were told that actually this raid was very useful because they learnt what not to do. So when it was all over, did they die in vain? Was there some purpose to their sacrifice? Was it useful for planners? There were some lessons, I think, learnt. One is obviously the need to have a very, very heavy bombardment before the troops go in. And there were special ships designed that were able to get quite close inshore and deliver quite a lot of firepower to German positions along the landing beaches. But I don't think that's something that you needed to launch a massive, very costly raid to learn. I think you know that was fairly commonsensical. In terms of the memory of the raid, I think 
it's important to remember that if you've taken part in something like this and survived it, you need to give it some meaning. You need to give the risks you've taken and the sacrifice that you've made and that your comrades have made some purpose. So I think there was a very understandable tendency to say, yes, it was worth it. I mean, some of the participants who survived, people like Dennis Whitaker of the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry, very thoughtful soldier, wrote a very good book about Dieppe. He's very critical of higher command of some of his own officers, etc., senior officers. He was an officer himself. But when it comes to the final evaluation, he says, yes, it was worth it. And he does highlight what he thinks are the lessons learned and the economies in life, if you can put it like that, that were made as a result. But I sense in there, there's a bit of a feeling that it can't have all been for nothing because it would just be too sad, really. So to this day, I think in Canada, there are kind of mixed feelings about it. One, it was an incredible display of heroism by the Canadian troops. And so there's a kind of reluctance, I think, to say. But once again, you know, we were sort of used as cannon fodder by British commanders. I mean, I think that would be a harsh way of putting it, but... You could understand why people might think that. So, Patrick, in conclusion, a bit depressing. It was just a complete military disaster with almost no redeeming features. I think the redeeming features are really the behaviour of the participants, particularly the Canadians, the way that they refuse to be daunted. They've been given this very, very bad hand, dealt this very bad hand in terms of the plan itself. And yet they were undaunted and they went ahead with... Spirits were high, uh, very little evidence of any demoralisation and behaved with great courage and with great sort of humanity towards each other. So I think that is something, you know, that is an achievement. It is quite rare, actually, that you see an operation where so many things that could go wrong do go wrong and that so many bad decisions are made. But I think from a historical point of view, it's important to study failures and to study decision-making, how decision-making can go wrong so easily for a variety of reasons, some of them being, frankly, questions of ego, questions of vanity. I think it's particularly true in the case of Mountbatten and Montgomery, who played a big part in it. He was the overall commander of the Canadians. The Canadian divisions came into his uh, army group in southeast England. And it's it's a salutary reminder of how, in wartime, people get free reign to do things they would never be allowed to in peacetime. And so these big egos like Mountbatten and Montgomery, if they're not checked, their actions can have pretty disastrous consequences. Among the individual acts of heroism, you have the shining example of Captain John Foote, who won the VC for his amazing heroism on the beaches in front of Dieppe, basically totally disregarding his own safety and spending several hours dragging wounded men back into what tiny cover there was available, ministering to them, patching up their wounds as best he could. He was helping the medics. And then when the opportunity came for him to leave, there was a landing craft came in, he might possibly have gone on to it. And he said, no, no, I'm staying with the men, and went into captivity with them and carried on his good work in the prison war camps. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast and telling me all about Dieppe. The book is called? The book's called Operation Jubilee, The Folly and the Sacrifice. And despite the slightly depressing 
nature of the material, I still think there's an uplifting element to it. Thank you so much for coming on the pod, telling us about it. Thank you. I feel we have the history upon our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Thanks, folks, for listening to this episode of Turnstone's History. As I say all the time, I love doing these podcasts. They are the best thing I do professionally. I feel very lucky to have you listening to them. If you fancied giving them a rating and review, obviously the best rating review possible would be ideal. It makes a big difference to us. I know it's a pain, but we'd really, really be grateful. And if you want to listen to the other podcasts in our ever-increasing stable, don't forget we've got Susanna Lipscomb with Not Just the Tudors. That's flying high in the charts. We've got our medieval podcast, Gone Medieval, with the brilliant Matt Lewis and Kat Jarman. We've got The Ancients with our very own Tristan Hughes. And we've got Warfare as well, dealing with all things military. Please go and check those out wherever you get your pods. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.